The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. One in ten people in the world lack adequate access to fresh water. According to a report by the World Economic Forum, the so-called water crisis is the number five global risk in terms of impact to society. Nearly 1.5 times the population of the entire U.S. lives without a household water connection. These people, especially women and children, must spend time to get water instead of going to school or working or caring for their families. But Jay, I understand that all this is about to change soon quite a lot. Well, Tom, Bob Bisson, our guest today, and I have uh, worked for decades trying to change it. It's an uphill battle, as you'll hear when I talk to uh, various questions about Bob, because surface water has always uh, been the preferred source. Uh, Groundwater is always hidden from view. Uh, It's wrapped up in uh, mystery still, even though it really is uh, a straightforward technology. And Bob, many decades ago, discovered that the earth and our nation and other nations really have fabulous uh, hidden groundwater resources that he has developed, and we're uh, continuing to promote them around the world. So uh, go ahead and tell our listeners about Bob now, Tom. Yeah, sure, Jay. Our guest today is Robert, or Bob Bisson, founder of Earthwater Global. Bob's company uses technologies familiar to the oil and gas industries to find and develop renewable, previously overlooked, groundwater resources. Bob was born in 1946 in Laconia, New Hampshire, and was initially involved in underwater exploration. By the mid-60s, he had joined Jacques Cousteau's crew in the Mediterranean. He later got into the oil, natural gas, and mineral exploration business, and in 1972 founded his own company, BCI Geonetic. It was then, while drilling for minerals, that he began to encounter groundwater, lots of it, in fractured bedrock. Over the last three decades, Bob has developed large quantities of water in areas of the world previously thought to be water constrained. For example, in 1999, the island of Tobago was in the midst of a severe water crisis, hoping to avoid a five to 10 year wait for alternative water supplies and significant environmental damage from a proposed dam. Government authorities hired Bob's company to map and develop new water resources. Within 12 months, they'd identified 190,000 cubic meters per day of new capacity, an amount 100 times previous incremental groundwater estimates, and delivered 19,000 cubic meters per day to the island's water lines. 
So there's a similar story also with Bob in Somalia and in Sudan, for example. So welcome to the show, Bob. Thank you very much. Really appreciate being here and uh, look forward to discussing these matters uh, in depth. Yeah, for I, sure. Bob, Bob, you have written about large supplies of groundwater overlooked by conventional exploration. When did you first discover the possibility of widely overlooked water resources? Well, I, actually at the time we were under contract with a major oil company. Uh, this was my first company, BCI Geonetics. And uh, we were using very much space age technology. We're in, in concert with NASA, with US Geological Survey, and with a number of uh, leading uh, mines in the exploration industry. Uh, and so we had concepts and tools available to us that other people did not have. And the oil industry recognized that. And one of the, the leading entities hired us to look and figure out, see if we could figure out a way to understand how oil and gas might exist underneath the Eastern thrust sheet in the United States, which is basically New England and expanded. And through hard granite that's thrust up over the oil and gas bearing sedimentary deposits underneath. And we got into that and we use modern geotectonic concepts. Plate tectonics was one of them. And remember even in the early seventies, plate tectonics was not an accepted theory in universities and colleges worldwide. It was something only used by number of uh, exploration people or oil companies who had the money and the need to spend it to find new resources. And so we did that for the oil patch. And indeed it worked. Our, the combination of ingredients we applied to it and we employed to make it happen, including a whole lot of hard rock geologists from schools ranging from uh, Dartmouth College in New Hampshire down to Boston University uh, and everything in between and, and outside. We were using hard rock geologists and it's hard to find work in those days. If uh, a geologist graduating with that degree wanted a job, he'd have to go and get another degree in a Midwestern or Western university that offers sedimentary geology to find oil and gas. And so we use them in the oil and gas industry to find oil trapped in bedrock fracture zones in the thrust belt, in the Eastern thrust belt, and it actually worked. And then we did not employ it to look for more oil and gas because we were paid to do it for one company. Rather, we continued doing it to find other minerals, other, other fluid sourced valuable products that would end up being trapped in these fracture and fault zones that were regional in character, regional meaning hundreds or even thousands of miles. We were at that time just looking at the big picture in the Northeast of the United States, but that was hundreds of miles, which is far greater than anybody had been thinking before might exist in terms of fluid conductivity over long distances. And hydraulic continuity is the driver because hydraulic continuity, water flowing downhill, pushed all sorts of things downhill with it. And also took out of the rock because it's water, the universal solvent, and it's very acidic going into the top of mountains. And it goes down through these fracture and fault zones. 
and travels under pressure, which also is a factor. And it wears away the rock, takes minerals out of the rock. And then sooner or later, it goes deep, it comes up shallow, and it precipitates out various elements. And they're in different environments, depending on their characteristics. So we look for gold. We look for economic minerals. And what we found everywhere we looked, including originally for oil, was water, groundwater, and huge quantities under pressure, moving through vast distances. And it's something that simply no one had seen before because they didn't look and they didn't have the technology to look in these places that were so intricate. So at the time, unknown. It was, it was not in the books. It was not in the record. It was in our record. Uh, well, Bob, let me interrupt you. You're explaining that very, very well. It's a fascinating historical story. Uh, along the way, you coined a term mega watershed. Uh, could you explain that concept to our listeners? Yes. It's actually, it, that word popped into my mind in Sudan when I was doing a project uh, there with our team in the States, but also I had with me uh, in the airplane that I chartered at Twin Beach that went all over uh, the northern part of the country that wasn't in the middle of a revolution. The South was fighting the North. Uh, and we went over the adjacent states, North, South, East, West, and looked at everything from the volcano uh, in, in the West to the mountains uh, in, in the North and so on and so forth. And basically, because we were in the Great Rift System area, I recognized that what I was looking at was the Great Rift Valley straight up under my face. And I could see, my eyes could see the structures very clearly that were carrying uh, various fluids and water among them. And so I thought, oh my gosh, this is not the little watersheds that people think about in their backyards. This is, these are mega watersheds. These are gigantic, enormous watersheds. And they start in the mountains where water goes in the top and it goes down through the mountains, through the fractured fault zones under greater and greater pressure. And it goes underneath the sediments through the hard rock and out into very distant places or in, under the ocean, we learned later. That is so fascinating. Why is your discovery still being overlooked by hydrogeologists? Well, hydrogeologists are beginning to look. Remember when we started this, hydrogeologists didn't really exist. Hydrologists existed and they specialized in a different category of water. And in order to link hydro and geo together, it took some work and universities had to get into it. And so we, we were uh, fortunate only 10 or 15 years after I started the company to be able to attract people who had actually academically pursued this and looked at, at the, uh, the physics and the, all of the attributes of, of these mega watersheds uh, on their own in an academic environment. We were far from academic environments. We were practical and looking for it. And if we found it, we tried to figure out how it was working. You say it came out under the ocean. So I guess, does that mean there's actually, I mean, most of the world is covered with ocean. Does that mean there's actually fresh water supply possible under the oceans? It certainly is. Uh, there's uh, There are countless oil companies out there and with uh, oil rigs drilling in deep water and in and through thousands of feet of uh, rock and sediments, trying to find plays of oil 
uh, and they, from time to time, suddenly their their drill stem gets slammed against the side of the hole because they happen upon a big cave system that is fault and fracture controlled, which is got running water that might be 200, 400 or more square feet in surface. And it's running at five to 10 knots. And it just hammers that drill string against the wall and they can't get it out. And because <laughs> they tried pumping mud down, cement down, but it all just goes into the flow of the gigantic river and eventually <laughs> goes out uh, into the ocean and somewhere it, it discharges in the continental, under the continental shelves and in the continental shelves of, the, of the, all of the continents. They've got blowouts happening all over the place along the continental slope where the shelf at 200 meters goes down to you know, it slants steeply down toward the seabed much much deeper than that uh, and so it may cut across uh, these these it, it cuts off or allows the discharge of these channels of water coming out and you can see it nowadays it's only again i'm an oceanographer also uh, in the past number of decades several decades that we have the technology to see that deep in the sea and actually mm -hmm. document it wow that's incredible huh. yeah, quite so, why uh, why do they often term the water you find fossil water, which seems like uh, to me sort of an insult because it kind of indicates that it's uh, not a, a reserve that will continue to flow. Why have they been able to label some of your discoveries fossil water? Well, Jay, it's an interesting uh, analogy here, we can look at humans, and uh, I've been called a fossil from time to time uh, <laughs> by various family members, but uh, it, it's the water that, that has been discovered at depth by others because they're looking for something else. It's not been done on, on purpose. Is quite often fossil, and it may be for a reason which they describe as being it's trapped and it's it's just ancient water that got trapped there millions of years ago, or it can be part of our systems uh, where it's stagnant for a period of time. It may be hundreds of thousands of years. I don't know, it might be millions of years. Because Why? Because there's nobody taking water at the bottom in order to bring water in the top if there's water being recharged. And the whole system is stagnant. But if you get the system moving, by pumping water out, guess what? Things change dramatically. We have seen this everywhere from East Africa to the islands and where we've really gotten big water. Mm -hmm. And you can very clearly see that this water is, is being introduced in the high elevations and it is going down and, and it is exercising what water does. It's a, it's, a, it's a universal solvent, that's water in the ground, rainwater. And it's also incompressible, relatively speaking. Therefore, it has its way. And when they pump our wells, as time goes on, as in Trinidad and Tobago, very good examples because they're big, big wells. They're two or three million gallons a day, some of them, eight feet above the ground when we originally drilled them. Okay, I have pictures of me standing next to these water spouts coming out of the ground. And what happens over 20 years or so is, guess what? Water works as magic. And so you've got the water widening the rock by dissolving it. And you've got the water getting 
better and better quality because it, it has less and less to take out of the rock. So the quality doesn't go down, it goes up over the years. And so they find, guess what? We've got water that's almost free to take out of the ground in most places. And you have to pump it uphill. Yes, perhaps. But guess what? It's free coming out of the ground. And that's what it is in Trinidad mm -hmm. and Tobago as a very good example. Mm -hmm. I, I have two quick questions. One of them is, so it sounds like there are massive rivers under the gr ground and under the ocean. How, like, how would they compare with a, a, you know, a large river on Earth, for example? Are they of that sort of magnitude? Uh, different, different character entirely. I mean, they're confined. Mm -hmm. It's a pipe. It's like mm -hmm. a, a gigantic a pipe or, a, or a, a concrete corridor for transmission of water, which mm -hmm. you can see people, men have built them. I mean, we have built them as humans over the millennia. And mm -hmm. uh, it, it works kind of that way. And it actually, mm -hmm. even on the surface, uh, water works its magic to the detriment uh, quite often of these wonderful engineering feats uh, and uh, bashes them down, dissolves the stuff, takes the, the support material out from under the constructs and so on and so forth. So that, you know, water is bad news on the surface and good news at depth as far as we're mm -hmm. concerned. Yeah, so with these flowing water, fresh water, thousands of feet under the ocean bottom and under the land, yep. do you have life forms that are living in there as far as you can tell? Uh, well, there are certainly places like we looked off of Lebanon and places like that. In fact, my old company, Ocean Science and Engineering, where I worked for Willard Bascom, who did the Mohol project. He's the guy who did the mo. He wrote the book, The Hole in the Bottom of the Sea. Very interesting. Oh, okay. Anyway. They discovered uh, off of Lebanon uh, that they they have carbonate rocks that are fractured and faulted, uh, caused by the underlying structures that forced them to do so. I mean, the tectonics works in, in the brittle rock, you know. So this water goes through these rocks and dissolves out things, but it, it's a very soluble material. So they get sinkholes in the, on the land and in the ocean. On the land sinkholes, as we, we, I did a project in Bermuda, one of my favorite islands, uh, many, many, many years ago. Uh, and uh, we discovered what sinkholes are the best place in the world to put your junk. So people throw garbage in them. So for generations, <laughs> Bermudians have thrown trash and garbage into these holes. Meanwhile, you've got a fellow 100 years ago, I can't remember his name right now, who went out in a diving bell and, and uh, dropped down and looked at uh, how Bermuda works underwater down to a thousand or more feet. And it discovered that that Bermuda goes up and down uh, relative to ocean surface over tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years. And therefore you've got reef and carbonate material that goes all the way down to ocean depths of over exceeding a thousand feet. And indeed these the sinkholes and the structures and the that control the flow of water go down and penetrate underneath and go out under the ocean too and and pop out in different places depending on again when they were above the surface they might dissolve out they might you know rainfall does does its number also so it's fascinating stuff we certainly have not figured out everything about it and, uh, tom wants to know if you've found living organisms in that water oh yes 
So yes, in the in the events where um, you've got access from the sea or from the land, uh, active access, you get animals and, and and germs. I mean, all sorts of different life forms forming in the water in the sinkhole and following it as best it can if it can survive out under the sea and in the sea itself. Yes, at the bottom of these blue holes, for example, off of down off Belize, uh, there's a blue hole that I mapped as part of a big system coming out of, uh, of Belize when I did it for the Canadian International Development Agency decades ago, 40, 50 years ago. Uh, and indeed, the groundwater underneath that beautiful blue hole, which has all sorts of trash on the bottom, which divers are, are discovering now that they can get down there and uh, three or 400 feet of water. I can't remember the depth, the total depth, it's, it's deep. So you've got to use helium oxygen and gas mixes and stuff like that. But I'm a heliox diver. I'm a 200 meter qualified deep gas dive, you know, deep water diver. So I understand what they're up against. Cousteau went and looked at it and it, one of his sons uh, actually went into it to some degree, but they didn't have the technology at the time, I don't think, to get them. You know, you, you mentioned Cousteau and as I recall reading your history as a very uh, young man, you traveled on maybe the Calypso, which was Cousteau's uh, investigative ship. Am I right? Well, actually, the, the Calypso was trapped in the Suez Canal because it was a six-day war. So everything on the deck of the Calypso at the time was being shot at uh, by two sides. Uh, and and Jeek was down there trying to deal with that when I first got there. Uh, and when he did get back, the ship was still stuck there. And so he assigned me to the Winnaretta Singer, which was, a, I think, about a 60-meter, no, no, 40-meter uh, motor sailor uh, that, that was gifted to the Musée d'Oceanographique by, by the Singer family, sewing family in the United States. And it's a beautiful sailing yacht, uh, motor, motor sailor, and wonderful to dive from. And uh, so I got to be the diver, a diver on that, and eventually chief diver. And I went out all over the Mediterranean with my best friends from Marseille. I was living in, in Marseille, part of that time and part near Monaco and working out of Monaco. So you actually knew or met Cousteau? Yeah, he hired me when he got home. Well, I mean, that, that's, in, that's incredibly yeah. exciting. I mean, our listeners, I'm always bragging about the fact that I uh, uh, knew Albert Einstein, had a nodding acquaintance with him at Princeton. But uh, very few of our listeners, all everybody knows who Jacques Cousteau is. But uh, to listen to somebody that uh, actually worked with him is uh, it's always been exciting for me to to know that about you, Bob. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, I waited several months for him to return. I went to his office every day in Monaco, and uh, when he finally got there, he came to his secretary and she explained to him I'd been coming in every day. I had letters of introduction, very close friends of his, and he took me into his office overlooking the reef uh, offshore. Oh my God, it's beautiful in the Musée d'Orsay. And I, and we spent four hours in there. And at the end of four hours, he gave me a French government grant. He gave me a job and he gave me school and sent me off to the university in Marseille along and, and put me on, on the research vessel. So yes, time, <laughs> small amount of time counts if you do it right. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Well, let's going back to your mega watershed concept that you've described some good examples 
broadly speaking, do you think this concept could solve many perceived water shortages around the world? Well, yes. Uh, much like the oil patch, it's there. We know it's there. We have mapped the world, basically, the civilized world, uh, the inhabited world, uh, for these resources for almost 50 years. And um, there's no doubt it's there in most of these places. And in the places we've mapped, we've identified where it is. And the question is, how do you get to it? Okay. And that, you know, finding precisely where it is, where to drill, and having a practical methodology for drilling that gets you there is problematic for a large portion of the world. And in fact, we're through the learning curve we uh, went through uh, over decades uh, indicated that standard water drilling technology does not work. It's, it's, it's predicated on oil drilling technology, which tries to keep water out, not let it in. So, it, I mean, it's, it's a, we had to go to Canada, actually, to find the technology, which we did. Uh, and the technology was being employed to drive piles and in ocean uh, in harbors and so on. It had, it had very seldom been used for water exploration because people didn't drill on hard rock. Why would you drill to You drill through the sediments and you hit the rock, you stop. That's called refusal. Okay, that's the end of the line. We, this is just the start of where we go. So we had to actually restructure the drilling industry, redesign the technology, redesign the, the methodology of using it over the years. I'm a little confused with where the water is situated with respect to the oil, let's say. Is it sit below the oil? Because I guess the oil is lighter than water. Well, it, it is sometimes actually in the same place as oil. And indeed, you're correct. But that's not what we're looking for. We're looking for mm -hmm. water that's just water, not next to anything else. And the methodology we use and the, and the, and the immense amount of knowledge we gained from millions and millions of dollars spent in thousands tens of thousands of man hours of so many disciplines i mean we employed 15 to 20 different disciplines at a time in history when there were hydrologists they were the only ones and mm -hmm. drillers were drillers and they you know if they didn't find water they, the water wasn't there Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, we should go for a break now, so we'll be right back after the break with Bob Bisson and learn more about mega watersheds. This is amazing. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's fast-paced digital age makes it tougher. You're not alone. Poor sleep affects over 70% of us. The CDC even labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. Advanced nutrition company, Healthy Cell, created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake refreshed. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep using calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Over a thousand reviews with an average star rating of over 4.4 proves it works. Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. 
While many things we hear are lies, we know one thing is true. Viruses exist and people get sick. Look, there's no guaranteed way to keep from getting sick, but there is a way to reduce your chances. Cofix RX, the original povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray that you hear Dr. McCullough talking about, provides an additional invisible layer of protection from colds, flu, coronaviruses, and more. Click the banner ad on americaoutloud.com and use promo code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Stay protected with Cofix RX. Hey, so we're back with Bob Bisson, a water explorer who's finding new mega watershed sources all over the world. Really incredible, helpful solution to what the World Economic Forum says is a water crisis. So, Jay, you had another question. Yes. uh, Bob, describe the nature of the investigation and the tools you use. It's quite different, I understand, from normal groundwater exploration. So could you tell our audience what sort of tools and what technology you're using to find these deep fractures full of groundwater? Well, the technologies we're using, again, started with our, the beginnings of, the, of my first company. Okay? And I've had eight or 10 of them in a row, in, side to side, specializing in different countries. But basically, we were the first to employ these methodologies, these concepts, these technologies for oil and gas. And then we continue to use all of them for water deep in the ground. And that includes satellite remote sensing, airborne remote sensing, geophysical techniques of every form available, and concepts, geological concepts, tectonic concepts of how the earth formed and how it continues to form that really go to the edge of what's available in the world today. So we basically went out shopped from the get-go for everything that could possibly be available. For example, not only did did we use the first Earth Resources Technology satellite that I have, Bill Widger, uh, uh, who was my chief scientist for several years, had previously been a teacher at one of the colleges I attended because I went for a year of meteorology. And Bill Widger was the most famous meteorologist around and worked with NASA and helped put together the Earth Resources Technology Satellite and then deploy it for practical problem solving. And one of those problems that I had was that I wanted to solve what's going on on planet Earth and under planet Earth. So we used all of the different kinds of multispectral capabilities of that first satellite and many satellites other than that. Then we were I was co-principal investigator on the large format camera flight that uh, Sally Ride and, and uh, Kathy Sullivan uh, went on. Kathy is now the, the chairman of our local Explorers Club uh, chapter here in Washington, D.C. I've been a, a fellow of the Explorers Club for 36, 38 years and uh, was indicted and brought in there, inducted uh, way early in the game in my life because of the crazy things I did. Consequently, I met all these people and more technology, and I get access and access and access. So, all right. So, so you really need you, you need a big picture. You really need to look at the Earth in a very wide spectrum. Where on the Earth, around the Earth, do you feel uh, the the greatest potential for these mega watersheds? Well, wherever we have substantial plate tectonics activity that has resulted in high elevations, which 
according to the laws of physics, when hot air full of, of uh, moisture goes up to high elevations, guess what? It rains, precipitates. That's just physics. It doesn't matter if it's global warming or not, okay? Physics. So water at the top of the mountain is going to fall. You may have problems in the valley, have problems elsewhere, but at the top of these mountains and actually all through these high elevations, you get precipitation. So universally speaking, you can actually say on this planet, we've got almost everywhere on the planet, you know, rainfall like that happening and tectonics histories that have resulted in those being very leaky mountains. The earth leaks. So these mountains allow this water to leak through. It goes down underneath the sediments. It doesn't come out nearby. So you don't, people don't see it. It goes under them and it goes wherever it wants to go, according to nature, as I've already previously described. So it's hard to find a place on the planet that is too far removed from the source because it's often hundreds or even thousands of miles. I mapped stuff going off of the, the big volcanic mountain in the Western Sudan, going out into Egypt to the north through structures, big fault and fracture zones that explained all the major oases of that area. Farouk Al-Baz, who was the principal advisor to Mubarak for years, and his brother took the next president, and, uh, and Farouk is now at Boston University, head of remote sensing, and he was on my board of directors for years, and he brought us to Egypt. And I had an office in Cairo uh, with Bechtel Corporation. We shared the offices with a friend at Bechtel, who was head of the desalination industry from Bechtel. And I mm -hmm. worked with the desal industry for years, trying to find them better sources of water, because 70% of the cost of desalination is getting the quality to the point where they can treat it with their technology. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, they're saying in the future we'll have wars about fresh water. So what you're suggesting then actually indicates that we could actually call this a peacemaking activity because yes. it'll make water available all over in places where they're otherwise desperate. Correct. The exam mm -hmm. prime example. But, we, sorry, Jay. Sorry. Well, I, I, you and I have a friend, I believe, from uh, Oregon State University that wrote a uh, book about water wars. Am I correct? Yeah. You remember his name? Oh, my goodness. Yes. I, I have, I, I I have forgotten it, too. But he went back. Uh, it's fascinating. I talk about it in many of my speeches. He went back 2,000 years and found that there were no water wars, that water is a, a, such an interesting thing. No matter how much two countries hate each other, uh, they'll sit down and uh, solve the water problem in an amicable way. For all of my professional uh, life in hydrogeology, there have always been people predicting water wars and they, they never happen and they never have happened. It's rather strange. Actually, the most people that have been killed over water problems are the, uh, the ranchers and the farmers out in the old West. Uh, you know, individual people got shot over water, but there has never been a war and probably never will be. <clears throat> but, uh, as Tom raises the issue, the fact that this is a new area of finding water, it, it is uh, also works toward peace and the lack of wars if we can implement these uh, techniques. Yes, well, a good example is Northern Ethiopia, 
where we mapped extensively. And I also flew over all the Blue Nile and the lakes and everything there with geologists. And uh, we fundamentally, right now, the, the Ethiopian government is talking about, well, they're planning on building a dam on the Blue Nile, which endangers Egypt way downstream. Egypt is very concerned and has made it very much known. And I've had meetings when I went to an international conference in, in the year 2000 in Cairo, all these people came from all over the Nile watersheds to talk to me because I gave a, a big presentation with movies and stuff with Farouk as my host. And uh, Wes Skiles, a deep diver I used from Florida to look at the deep aquifers underneath Florida. He'd go down four or 500 feet under Florida using mixed gas uh, equipment and in film these things. I have films of, of these mega watersheds under, uh, under Florida. Now, when you talk about mega watersheds, you've used the term plate tectonics as uh, creating the structures. I would guess most of our listeners have heard the term plate tectonics, but don't know exactly what it means. Could you give a brief description of what we talk about when we talk about plate tectonics? Well, the, the earth is made up of different geological plates and they move about. I mean, we know the continents have gone from one place to another. Sometimes they're all together in, a, in this gigantic North American mass and suddenly they depart. I mean, at one time, North Africa was bumped into, into Virginia and slid up over Virginia and formed the mountains. And then, in, in fact, it was uh, Tunisia. I, I, knew, I once knew the country that is now known slid up and left part of itself up on top of the mountains and, and it eroded and went down and formed West Virginia. <laughs> so now you know where West Virginia came. Well, now, now, of course, this is over millions of years. And one thing most of our listeners of a certain age might remember when they were kids and they looked at a map of the world, it sort of looked like all the different continents could fit together like a jigsaw puzzle. And when I, when I began in college, uh, the idea that that ever was true was laughed at. And it was a uh, professor, I think it was, his name was Hess at Princeton University, along with others that justified the idea that in fact, all of the continents were at one time mixed together and as you've described, separated and floated away. Uh, and this is the concept of plate tectonics. Yeah. yeah. I, I had a question. It's a little off the wall. In some of the orbital visions of Mars, they actually see evidence of recent flowing water, which would, of course, sublimed into the atmosphere very quickly because it's such a low atmospheric pressure. Is it possible that under Mars, there may be huge amounts of flowing water? Yes, it is entirely possible. In fact, we did a feasibility study on Mars with our partners who were with NASA at the time. Mm -hmm. Wow. Think, uh, and Farouk, let's see, who was the head of, one of, one of our guys was the head of the uh, remote sensing the area of, of the Smithsonian. And mm -hmm. I think that was Farouk, yeah. And, and we proposed to NASA to send new satellites to Mars with sensors on them which would show us what our sensors have on, in our satellites here. So we proposed it, we sent the evidence for it. I had two principal investigators with me, two others who were, say, shall we say, very, very qualified. And, mm -hmm. and you know what uh, NASA came back with? 
I'm sorry, but you, you can't be peer reviewed because nobody's done it before. <laughs> you know, because they keep talking about having settled near the north and south poles of Mars, but there may be plenty of water just well, a few hundred feet They've already, I mean, they've proven it since we did that decades ago, that proposal. They have, they can see the evidence of the water outflowing, discharging, mm -hmm. clearly all over the place. Now that we've got little uh, robots running around and flying around and uh, taking pictures, mm -hmm. you can at least see. So yes, Mars leaks. And it, <laughs> no, it doesn't any longer precipitate. So the yeah. charge is not going on. Rather, there's transfers going on uh, because mm -hmm. there's still movement dynamics going on in the planet. And they're discovering more and more about that as time goes on. And as people throw money at Mars and, and put these wonderful robots uh, flying and running around. So I'm certain that they will eventually come to the conclusion of the obvious, okay? But I would love to be invited back to do something like tell them where practically they should drill precisely instead of messing around with, you know, generic kind of models uh, that say, oh, well, you can go out in this this area, which is what they've got now. I mean, they've got some areas where they, they're pretty dang sure that they can get through into something, but what are they going to put there? And what kind mm -hmm. of are they going to use? Uh, and how are they going to get it there? And how are they going to deploy it? I mean, they're doing it with something, but I don't know what it is because I'm no longer part of that, that part of, of NASA. But it's, it's frustrating to see. Yeah. Let me ask you a two-part question relating to uh, mega watersheds and water supply. What parts of the world have the most serious water shortage problems and what parts of the world would be practical in terms of developing mega watersheds that you think likely exist? Well, the places I would pick from my experience in this matter, and we've, we've got uh, two or 300 uh, regions that we've mapped, that we have them. But in terms of the greatest impact in, in current times, certainly Ethiopia and, and is, we're looking at potential, there, there already is ongoing serious problems there. And one of my principal scientists on the team is Eritrean, both Eritrean and, and, and Ethiopian, but he's originally Eritrean uh, and he's also Ethiopian. But anyway, he's very interested. And, and uh, Bob Walter, who uh, was my chief scientist in my last company uh, and the one before that, and is now is, they've got their own uh, entity going, Power7 out there. And basically they mapped East Africa together for 20 or more years. In fact, Bob Walter likes to, we would sit at a bar having a martini and, and uh, he would, and I would say to other people at the bar, would you like to know who dated the oldest woman on in, in the planet? And, and it was Bob Walter because he actually dated the, the female human who was dug up in East Africa. Uh, and, <laughs> and he actually went and used his technology to date the, the age of this, uh, this <laughs> so there you go. I can't, but what's Lucy? Lucy, he dated Lucy. Okay, the yeah, that's funny. Of, uh, yeah. And a multi-million year old date. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, seriously. <laughs> a, a, a terrific play on words, dating, yeah. I, I, I love it. If you were to tell companies that are interested in doing this kind of work, where they might have the most success, what would those areas be? 
Oh my gosh. Well, again, it's benefit cost. And that the benefit cost is both fiscal and physical when you measure it. And it, it depends. Okay. There are places where we've got plenty of money. Well, for example, we were in Connecticut during the, the droughts of the early 70s or the late 70s in New England and in, in South, okay, Northeast US. And we were in a, a very wealthy town and they had a reservoir. And we did our analysis and we found because they were desperately need a need of two or, two or three million gallons a day of water. I, I can't remember exactly what it was. So we found it, we proved it. We did the pumping test, ta-da. Well, the engineer who hired us came back with bad news. His bosses at the company, the water company said, oh no, no, no. We are forced, coerced by history to have a major investment in order to be able to make our money back. All right, we've got to raise the prices. We've got to do things. So we can't do it this way. We have to build, we have to make the dam higher, which is going to cost gazillions of more dollars than what you're talking about, which is a few million bucks. And it's going to take years to produce. And ours would produce it in, in weeks. Okay. But guess what? It doesn't make any sense business-wise to them. And that is the way it is over much of the world. The people who are responsible for delivering the water, they're, they're forced by legal constraints and all sorts of other things that, that are there to prevent them from being too stinky about finding water and, or delivering water. And this, is, this has to do with making a profit. And, but we get well, into I, greed, I, greed and power, Jay. Greed and power. Yeah, Bob, yeah. I, I have some personal experience in that area uh, along the Ganges, uh, Bangladesh, yes. particularly. I did some work there, and they have vast groundwater resources at great depth from all the oil well drilling. They had tremendous amount of data, but yeah. we were unable to cause them to develop the groundwater because the engineering companies that were the big movers and shakers uh, wanted to build dams on the uh, the Ganges. And mm -hmm. it really became a, a political battle. I wouldn't exactly say they, they threatened our lives, but they made life difficult for us trying to promote groundwater, working against the multi, multi, almost billion dollar projects that they wanted to finance there. And so you've described it well. Ground and surface water have fought each other unnecessarily around the world because the big money is in the surface water structures. Groundwater can be developed for a fraction of the cost, and therefore you don't get the, the political support for it. Very, very unfortunate. This is true. Mm -hmm. Wow. What are the, uh, the schools now doing most of the work in hydrogeology that would be possibly interested in your technology with uh, mega watersheds? Well, truth be told, I have not followed closely what the most, the, the global picture in, in terms of academics, but I have had feedback, voices from ranging all over the world uh, coming to me uh, and saying, you know, this is something we should be doing, but they're the problem is, again, somebody's got to support it. Somebody has to finance it. And uh, 
this involves a lot of different disciplines at the same time, uh, which is not something that most uh, universities teach, so to speak, all at once. You've got to have interdisciplinary, like a Mayo Clinic approach to medicine, okay? It's a 150-year-old thing that was put in place, the model was put in place uh, by a father and two sons, and then they built the facilities around it and brought in the personnel. So everybody talks to everybody else as a, as a peer. A nurse has merit. They, they talk to each other as peers. And I've been there, they saved my wife's life 27 years ago. And, and they've, they've done much more for us since then. I mean, institutions like that are one in a million that's the only one on the planet, actually, at this point. Now they co they're collaborating with other hospitals to try to get them to do it. I would love to collaborate with lots of entities who would like, who would be willing to put themselves on the line to make this happen. And so would my colleagues at the at the companies that I have built. And now other people are operating those companies, and they have limited capability to actually perform because most of them the people running them are specialists in a particular field of geology or geosciences and they they can't bring together the money and the resources uh, the human resources to make the magic happen so mm -hmm. you can't really go out and and do billion gallons a day projects across an entire country or state mm -hmm. we're often hearing about water shortage in california especially with respect to their agricultural areas. Do you know much about the availability of deep underground yeah. water there? Yeah. My headquarters until the, the stock market crashed in 2008, I had a public company, was in Santa Barbara. Mm -hmm. um, I lived in Montecito, right up the street from the Brits. And uh, basically, we mapped all of California. And uh, we had two phases to the company's funding. One was to do the mapping and identify and get the contracts identify where we're gonna drill. And the second was for the actual drilling. And guess what? 2008 happened in between. And so we were unable for the most part to, to go forward, but the data was remained and retained. And so many, many years later, decades later, I went to San Diego with an old friend from San Diego because they needed a serious source of water. And he knew very well, he was on my board of directors for years. Uh, in fact, when I went public, he was on my board and um, proposed to do a huge groundwater project for San Diego, but they had a desalination company come in and proposed to do a big desalination plan. And guess who won? The desalination plan. Long be there was no bidding war because we would have beat them. There's nobody yeah. who outbid us. <laughs> okay. Does the governor know that there's water supply deep under the ground right there? I have no idea what he knows or she knows. I don't even, I mean, I know Schwarzenegger was governor when I was, you know, last time I was there. So I, he probably would have seen this for what it was as an opportunity, but uh, I don't know who's there now. But if our listeners want to learn uh, more in detail about uh, what we've been talking about, to be totally transparent, Bob and I co-authored a book titled Modern Groundwater Exploration describing all of this. I, I don't remember the year it was published. Do you, Bob? Was it? Uh, 2004. 2004. Yeah. You have, uh, I understand, been talking to Wiley about the possibility of, uh, of a revised second edition. Has that moved at all? Well, it, in, the fact is, yeah, the, the senior editor 
uh, on the science side has contacted me. She wants a new book, not really revised old book, a, a new book that shows the one dimension that was missing in the first book. I mean, the first book had a few few years of time. Now we have 20 plus a few years. Yeah. So in, in places like Trinidad and Tobago, where we can demonstrate quantitatively that this water has been coming and increasing in volume and in quality, not decreasing. So it was portable. Well, Tom, you could uh, link to modern groundwater exploration for any listener yeah. that really wants to look at it in the uh, detail the book is uh, still available from uh, okay. Wiley. Yeah, yeah. I, I had uh, one other quick question for you. I don't know if you're aware, but Andy Caldwell is kind of an ally of us. He has us on his radio show out of Santa Barbara. I really think that we've got to get him into the loop because he would really trumpet the whole idea of deep groundwater solutions to their problems. So would you go on his Andy Caldwell show, for example? I would, and, and I have senior scientists uh, in Santa Barbara who are drop dead the best, uh, you know, mm -hmm. among the best I've ever uh, had the honor to meet. And mm -hmm. uh, Lord, Dr. Lorne Everett is this guy who lives in Santa Barbara and is, 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 is he's got a mind the size of <laughs> the multiverse. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, we'll right right there in the backyard. Yeah, yeah great we'll idea. In touch with Andy Caldwell, yeah, for sure. Yeah, by all means, we can get people, extremely uh, talented, skilled people I've worked with for years, all in California. They haven't all died of old age yet, so it's it's okay. And uh, it's promising, Jay. You're very promising. If you would approach them, you're, you'd be in good shape. Yeah, I think I'll do that. You know, California, we're going to have a major political shift come November 8th when the Republicans take over the House of Representatives, and I think there'll be... Uh, a shift in politics uh, all over the country that will uh, make sensible ideas more more palatable politically than they are today under this insane uh, tyrannical presidential group. So I'm mm -hmm. I'm very optimistic. Yeah. Now groundwater contamination was discovered to be rampant in the days of the Superfund projects. Um, what have been the major problems in this area, and how has it been improved? Well, mega watersheds, by the very nature of the beast, which is that the water goes in the top where nobody's uh, throwing junk in, uh, tops of mountains, with the exception of places like Bermuda and places uh, and, you know, in karst terrains uh, and, and carbonate terrains. And it goes out the bottom and there's a few additions in between and it's running under pressure, which actually defeats any possible infusion of, of junk into the system locally if it's not very high pressure. It's uh, because the pressurized system itself blow basically anything that would like to get in can't get in because mm. it's pressurized against it. And there's so much water going through the system, doesn't make a difference. If a little bit does get in, dilution is a solution to pollution and it works wow. in mega water. Yeah. Wow, I love all that pressure to get it out of the ground too. <laughs> uh, well, the pressure comes, it comes right out of the ground. I'll send you, I mean, I have pictures uh, online I can send to you uh, that very clearly demonstrate uh, yeah. this reality. Because, you know, with water towers in a town, they put it high up to give the pressure right. to the local, local system. Well, we've got even super, um, you know, techniques because we got the whole mountain is giving us the pressure. <laughs> yes, it is. 5,000, 10,000 feet up. 15,000 mm -hmm. feet up? Yes. I mean, yeah. I did wow. South America, all the Andes. I did 
you know, I've, I've done the Rockies. I've done, yes, but, you know, Peru and Colombia. We did these projects that all the preliminary work is done. The maps are ready. Ta-da. It'll be amazing for California if they really develop this. Well, I'd love to see it happen in my lifespan. I, I'll tell you that. Yeah, for sure. It'd be very, very gratifying to see so many people have water. Yeah, definitely. So we got time for one more question, Jay. Well, I want to get back to Andy Caldwell in uh, California. Tom and I have both been on his show, and he's a conservative who just barely lost a House seat two years ago. He's not uh, running this time, but he uh, works for all the good things that California should be doing. And uh, we'll definitely recommend both you and uh, Lauren Everett as uh, potential guests for his show and really introduce the idea. It's, it's really never too late. And while, of course, California will continue to vote uh, Democratic and they've got a, a really uh, nutty governor that thinks the uh, entire state can run with electric cars, I see a little sanity uh, creeping into that state in the coming years. And so uh, I think we can get something moving by uh, introducing uh, your concepts, uh, mega watershed, uh, all kinds of ways that there is more water than they're aware of in the state of California. So I'm very optimistic about that and we'll get moving on it. Good. Yeah, well, there, sure. there are dozens of publications out there besides the book, dozens and dozens written by many, many people. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, so there may be hundreds of publications at this point. Wow. I get, I get a lot of feedback on the web from people who are reading this stuff and following uh, this. And so you go on the web and you look under mega watersheds. You can put in my name too, but mega watersheds all by itself. Woof. Yeah. Well, that's encouraging. That's yeah. great. We have to wrap up there. This has been a very positive, encouraging and optimistic show and realistic show too, because there's a massive amount of water that's yes. available in dry places all over the world, especially California, where we can actually access it if people take the right steps. So our guest today has been Robert Bisson, founder of Earthwater Global, who's actually found water supplies all over the world in places like Somalia, the Sudan, Trinidad and Tobago, using this new mega watershed approach of deep underground water. So thanks for being on the show, Bob. It's been my honor. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Well, this is Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris signing out from the other side of the story.